Okay, so uh, we are picking up here in our discussion of uh, salvation. We are talking about the atonement tonight. Hopefully we can uh, cover the whole of that discussion uh, this evening. Last week uh, we uh, did talk about uh, the, finish up the, uh, ser- this, this, the material here on election. And again, uh, talking about all the realms in which it occurred, but also the purposes for divine election, which I think sometimes we miss. Uh, we somehow, because of our, you know, our high opinion of ourselves, uh, we tend to think of salvation and election and all this being entirely for us. It's, it's for us to, uh, to, to reap the benefits that God has given to us. And of course, that's not, we shouldn't exclude them from the, uh, from the purposes of election. But we actually realize that God's purposes in election exceed just getting people into heaven. Uh, the ultimate goal for all things in the universe is to glorify God. And we uh, saw several texts where we saw that the glory of God is the purpose of election. You're a chosen race so that you can proclaim the excellencies of God. He did this election to make known the riches of his glory. Uh, Ephesians 1, he predestined us to the praise of the glory of his grace. Okay, And so we recognize that the purpose for uh, our election and for his atonement of us is not merely to get us to heaven to bring ultimate glory to himself. And we said also in order to uh, facilitate our service to him. Our goal in life is not simply to get to heaven, but to actually do what he expects us to do. Uh, and thereby bring him the greatest possible glory. And so we see here that the holiness and service of believers is also a secondary goal of election. He chose us so that we would be holy and blameless. He predestined us that we would be conformed to his image. He chose us that we would go and bear fruit. We are chosen to obey Jesus Christ, where his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand for us to do. And so uh, we, we wrapped up this section on election with a realization that it's not just about us. In fact, it's not primarily about us. It's about God and bringing him the greatest possible glory and participating in his plan uh, for his universe. And so how does God go, ahead, go about uh, making this happen? Well, the, the first uh, thing we have to discuss after election uh, is the atonement. And so that was our, our, uh, we, we got a start on that last week, talked about the atonement there, the, uh, the work of Christ whereby he makes possible for us and secures for us all the benefits of salvation in his work on the cross. It's very important that we recognize this. When Christ went to the cross, he was not merely supplying something, he was actually uh, accomplishing something on the cross. He was not just making possible uh, salvation for everyone. He was actually securing it uh, for us. Uh, when he went to the cross, he substituted himself for us um, and and uh, and for all of God's elect. And so uh, we uh, we started in uh, with that with that realization that Christ went to the cross, intending to secure the salvation of those for whom uh he had he had uh, uh that his father had elected okay now we started off last time talking about here uh theories of the atonement and the reason we spend this time on this and you say well why why are we going through all these false theories of the atonement and the reason is because that's what you usually find when you talk to people on the street you ask you ask people, uh, you know, ask 10 people why they think Christ died on the cross, if they even realize he did. If they realize that he did, they'll probably, these 10 people will probably give you 11 different answers as to why Jesus went to the cross. Some of them are partially right. Some of them are completely wrong. Um, and I think it's important for us to understand what people think uh, with whom we are talking and there's and uh, so we, so I wanted to go through these six what I called inadequate views of the atonement. I think we really only got through the first two, correct? Am, am I correct. Just me doing. Yeah, so I think we got through the first two. Right. 
Okay. Uh, just a quick review. The ransom view of the atonement is the view that you find in C.S. Lewis's book and the attendant movie, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, Chronicles of Narnia. The idea here is that Christ went to the cross to pay a ransom to Satan to purchase back the souls of men that he has secured ownership of uh, by virtue of the, the sin that mankind has uh, has committed. And so uh, Satan, being the prince of the power of the air, is thought of in this model as owning the souls of the damned. And he gives them up grudgingly and only in exchange for the death of God, or or so he thinks. And so Christ dies on the cross, pays this terrific price. Uh, Satan believes he's actually won because... Jesus Christ has died, and yet we find in the fine print uh, of the arrangement that uh, Satan didn't take the time to read, uh, because Christ is the perfect sacrifice, he cannot stay dead, and so he rises victorious. But the purpose for him in going to the cross is to exchange his life for the life of others and actually give to Satan what he wants. Of course, this makes Satan far too powerful in God's order. And then secondly, really doesn't deal with the problem of justice. Okay, Not to mention it makes God somewhat deceptive. A second view that you sometimes see is the Christus Victor view, which is popular among various forms of liberation theology. And I, I mentioned last time one of the primary places we see this, is in black liberation theology. The idea here is that when Christ went to the cross, he was going to the cross to secure victory or liberation for those oppressed people groups throughout the world. Okay, And so we find this uh, in, in many Latin uh, theologies, also black liberation theology, and other theologies that are, uh, that are uh, proposed by uh, oppressed uh, uh, people groups. And so this Christus Victor approach is, again, in part true. You know, when Christ went to the cross, he did secure victory over all of the powers of evil and death. And yet, that is not something that is secured in this life, right? Uh, it is true that in the in the atonement is everything necessary for God's complete and entire triumph at the end of the age. But that triumph isn't realized immediately. And we should not expect that triumph to be secured in our lifetimes. Uh, so so we I think we 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 make Christ's atonement uh you know miss the mark if we think that what he's trying to do is liberate oppressed people from their temporal oppression on earth. Uh, There is no promise of relief from temporal oppression on earth, only from ultimate oppression uh, from from sin and death at the end of the age. So, again, there's a piece of truth here. Christ is victorious over the powers of evil, and yet... Uh, this, the, the, the whole idea of the Christus Victor view misses the point, the primary point of atonement. Another view is the moral influence view. This is a view very common in liberal theologies. Okay. So if, if Christus Victor was liberation kinds of theology, moral influence theory is liberal theology. Um, and this view uh, shows uh, Jesus as the perfect model of conduct in life and death. And so he lived a perfect life, and uh, even though he was uh, he was perfect, he was taken and put to death, and yet he died in the most perfect of ways, never, never, never rising up against his oppressors here and destroying them or or fighting back, but uh, very meekly and humbly going to the cross. And so as we look at this man, Jesus Christ, who lived so perfectly and died in such a ruthless manner without uh, without retaliating, we find in here an example for us as the way we ought to live uh, in this world. 
This is and 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 so the the goal then in liberal theology is for persons to be like Christ in in terms of their their moral act activity. This this view was made very popular uh, about a uh, hundred years ago, a little more than that, in a book uh, by Charles Sheldon called In His Steps. Anybody familiar with that? That, that yeah. book, okay. Uh, it has an alternate title, which you're probably more likely to have heard about, and that is, What Would Jesus Do? Okay. Uh, of course, there was a big craze here about 10, 15 years ago when there was all kinds of What Would Jesus Do? bracelets and pens and, and all kinds of paraphernalia that you could buy at just about any Christian bookstore. And a lot of book Christians had it. And, and you say, well, this is... What's, what's, what's wrong with that? It's a good question to ask. What would Jesus do and, and, uh, and, and act appropriately? In fact, it's drawn from a text in, in first Peter that, uh, we, uh, we ought to follow in his steps. Okay. So, so what could possibly be wrong with asking the question, what would Jesus do? Well, the, the whole premise of this book is that these two young men, uh, who are part of a, New England town. It's actually unnamed. It's actually a fictitious town. Uh, but they live in New England and they find that the, uh, the, 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 uh, the town is overrupt, overrun by corruption. And, uh, they want to do something about it. And they're not sure how to go about it. And they decide that they're going to live by the rubric. What would Jesus do? And so, and by following that advice, what would Jesus do? Um, and seeing if they could convince others to live this way as well, they hope to raise the moral bar, the ethical bar of their town, uh, so they, that so that the town wasn't such a cesspool of immorality. And it worked; they were successful. Uh, and so, by living in this way, what would Jesus do? Uh, they were able uh, to uh, to 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 establish morality on earth. And this is what liberal liberal theology is all about. Okay? It it, it assumes the innate goodness of man and uh and believes that people looking at this great example of Jesus Christ will will say, you know, this this is good motivation for me to live in an extremely moral way. And if everybody did this, this world would be a better place. And so Jesus went to the cross for no reason other than to influence us to live in a moral way. Now, there's some truth to that, right? Uh, we, we, we just talked about that just a few moments ago. He, God saved us in order that we might go and bring forth fruit and do works of righteousness, Okay. Nonetheless, that's not the totality of what Christ was doing or even the primary function of Christ when he went to the cross. Again, this, this model totally ignores all issues of divine justice, uh, renders the atonement an exercise in simply promoting morality, and often according to standards of morality that really aren't defined in the scripture. And as is true of uh, you know, liberalism in politics, oftentimes we find a moving standard in liberal theology of what is moral. And so for, so for instance, the idea of killing a child, which, a baby, which would seem to be an obvious immorality, we shouldn't kill children, actually bec- is reversed in our society. How? By saying that, actually saying that someone can't get an abortion is actually cruel and vicious to women. Okay, and so so the standard of morality by which liberalism has tended to operate over the course of years has actually been a moving standard, and actually a standard that sometimes calls good evil and evil good. And so this moral influence theory, while again having just a piece of the truth, really does not capture why Jesus went to the cross. Letter D here, which I've called the incarnational solidarity view. This is this is one I've added uh, since I started teaching this class a few years ago because it is the new kid on the block. But 
not just the new kid on the block. It's all the rage. In fact, I, I would I would wager that if you talked to most people under the age of 30 and asked them, why is it that Jesus went to the cross? This is the answer you're going to get. Okay, this, this is the this is the precise answer you're going to get. So it views the atonement as an it's it's really a, a postmodern updating of the moral influence views. It sees God as shifting from a punitive to an empathetic approach to reconciliation. Let me let me explain this. Okay, in the Old Testament, God was uh, here, here again. I'm, this is not what I'm teaching. This is what. This is what the incarnational solidarity view says here. Is in the Old Testament, God was trying to convince people to submit to him and to, and to embrace him as their God. And when people failed to respond appropriately, he punished them. Okay, so that's a punitive view. And uh, this, of course, over the course of time, uh, did not set well with God. And so he decides to send his son, Jesus, into the world to find out why these people were so recalcitrant, even though he was punishing them severely. And so Jesus goes to the world and he discovers uh, a world that's bitterly hateful of God. And uh, as he lives his perfect life, uh, he, he runs amok of these people. And these people actually take him and decide to kill him. And it is in the act of that murder that takes place that Jesus realizes that he's, that God has been going about this process the wrong way. Okay. And instead of having this punitive approach, punishing people for not submitting to God, he should actually have some sort of a solidarity with them, relate with them, and have what we see here, this word incarnate, an incarnational approach to ministry. And so that is God's new goal in, in order, he wants to relate to people so that he can understand them, sympathize with them, gain their trust, and in gaining their, their trust, earn also their allegiance. And that's what the mission of the church is as well. And so we, we create solidarity with people, and particularly oppressed people. So we find those, uh, you know, in, in the, uh, you know, in the, in that, that whole sphere of, of, uh, you know, the, the pecking order of how many, uh, how, how many points you have, um, in terms of, uh, what's, what's the, what's the phrase I'm trying to think of? Um, uh, the approach to, uh, social, social structuring. Did I, somebody saying something there? Um, yeah, it's right on the tip of my tongue here. Uh, but, uh, it's the, it's the political approach that's such, such the rage right now. Um, the, the idea that those who are in oppressed groups, such as, such as women, such as black people, such as, as, uh, homosexuals, um, and, and so on, so, and so forth, uh, actually earn a place, a earn a hearing uh, within society and those who are oppressors have no have no say. So someone who is like me, who is who is white, uh, who's male, who who is relatively wealthy, at least in terms of of you know perhaps the uh, uh the average, uh has no say in uh in in society. And so what we ought to be doing then is championing the cause of those oppressed people, and in so doing, earn a hearing for the gospel and 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 earn their their allegiance and their uh, and their and their uh, appreciation uh, for God. And so that's the idea of the incarnational uh, solidarity view. Major figures here include, and perhaps some of these names mean something to you or not, Jurgen Moltmann, or more, more recently Tony Jones. And while this view correctly identifies Christ's work as an eventual source of true justice, it abandons biblical definitions of justice. What is justice? Um, well, I think much of what goes goes on as social justice in today's world uh, is not anything close to what biblical justice is about. And so while it's 
it claims to have something to do with justice. Uh, it really doesn't. So it recasts justice according to non-foundational standards of morality. Okay, What is just and unjust are not as God defines them with an antipathy towards Christianity. And so that's the irony of this. Christians are the oppressors. And so their success is going to be limited, particularly as when it is being perpetuated by those uh, in the oppressor category. Okay? And this is, this is a very common view uh, that you're going to see, uh, particularly among you know, millennials um, and, and the, uh, the, the generation beneath them. Okay? There's also a governmental view of the atonement. Again, has a modicum of truth to it. The governmental view of atonement is the standard Arminian view. It recognizes that sin has extreme consequences in God's moral order. Okay, so that's the government. God's government is suffers because of human sin. And these consequences of sin wreak havoc on society. Now, God could, if he wanted to, simply forgive sin, but that wouldn't help society. And for in the governmental view, that's God's primary goal, to help society. And so what God does is order Christ to demonstrate for mankind the extreme results of sin in God's holy moral order, and thus convince men to reform themselves. Okay, so it's similar to the moral influence view. Uh, the same result is there, uh, but Christ's mission is a little bit different. Okay, so he's not coming simply to give a moral example, but actually to show what happens when people are sinners in God's holy order. There's consequences and we need to be aware of those. Okay, it's primary errors, again, are in underestimating the extent of depravity. Uh, there is no possibility in view of depravity that anyone is ever going to reform himself. There actually has to be something far more serious accomplished in, inside of a man or a woman in order for reformation to take place. One final false view here is the satisfaction only view. Okay. Now we're going to say that satisfaction is a vital part of the Christ's atoning work. But if we understand Christ's work only to be in the realm of satisfaction, we actually end up adopting the Roman Catholic view. This is the view of Anselm. It holds that Christ died to remedy God, the insult made by the kingdom of men against their king, God. Christ's death was not substitutionary. Instead, Christ died to satisfy God's wrath against sin. And so he absorbs the wrath of God against the sins of the whole world, even though he had not personally committed any sins of his own. But since God, since Christ is God, uh, all of the, uh, all of the, uh, when all the wrath falls upon him, he actually earns in his person a vast amount of merit for which he has no need. He doesn't, he doesn't really need to satisfy, uh, God's wrath because he's already perfect. And so what he does is he accumulates in heaven this vast repository of grace, which he can dispense. Okay. And how does he dispense it? Well, he dispenses this grace through the church, through the sacraments. Okay. And so Christ, uh, and, and so how does one get saved? Well, by attaching oneself to the church and participating in the sacraments. Uh, this is how one is ultimately saved in the Romanist system. Okay. Uh, they receive the extra merit that Christ secured on the cross. And once they accumulate enough of that, then they are able to enter into heaven. Okay. As we're going to see here, satisfaction is a very important, a vital part of what Christ is going to do. But if we divorce the idea of satisfaction from substitution, we run into trouble. Okay. 
any questions here on any of these views? And perhaps, you know, perhaps you're, you're wondering, you know, you know, I've got a neighbor who thinks X or Y or Z. Can you, can you, can you, can you peg him for me? Can you put, can you put him into this grid or, or perhaps you just want to ask some question about one of these, one of these views here? Fact is, you probably have met some of them. You probably, and, and, and the reason this, this discussion becomes important for us is because when you talk about Jesus dying on the cross, you actually could, can end up talking past people because they don't think the same way about the atonement as you are thinking and as the Bible is teaching. So, so, so these are just some things that you might come into contact with. Uh, so, uh, just so you can recognize them. Now we'll move then to what the biblical understanding of atonement is. Again, all of these, you know, give pieces of the puzzle. Uh, but I think the totality of what Christ has done here is in this twofold, uh, understanding here that we find here on page 14 for those of you who perhaps are just uh, joining in. So the biblical idea of atonement is this, substitutionary removal of guilt in satisfaction of God's penal demands, his punishment. So let's look at these two elements one by one here. First, we see here satisfaction. And this is an important element. It's not the totality, but it is an important element of what Christ is doing on the cross. We find our key text here in Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26. God displayed Christ publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. And that word propitiation, it's a large word. And uh, some of your trans, some of your translations actually try to uh, define it there right in the text. Uh, perhaps you have a, a text uh, that says here, uh, God displayed Christ publicly as a an atoning sacrifice. Um, unfortunately, that really is not as good a definition of that term as we'd like. So if, if I can, I, I, want to, I want you to learn this word tonight, this word propitiation. What this word means is a satisfaction of the wrath of God, okay? a satisfaction of the wrath of God. Um, it's wrapped up in what an atoning sacrifice is, but I think more precisely here, it is a satisfaction of God's wrath or a propitiation that is accomplished on the cross. Why did this happen? To demonstrate his righteousness so that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Let's see if we can unpack that. God's perfect and absolute holiness, his justice, sets up a perfect and absolute standard of right and wrong. Okay, This, in turn, demands perfect conformity to his standard of righteousness. That includes both motive, disposition, word, thought, action, all of the above. In order for us to measure up to God's expectation, we must be perfectly just. We must be perfectly righteous. So all personal standards, all personal beings are required to conform to this standard. That's what righteousness is, conforming to the standard that God has established. The problem, of course, is that we're sinners. Sinner, sin, if we can define it simply, is a violation of those standards. We do not measure up to God's expectations of righteousness, and this then creates in us guilt. We must be punished. We And guilt, of course, liability to punishment, means that we must be punished for the sins that we have done. God's holy demands are satisfied only through punishment. That That's the only way that God can respond to sin. He cannot look upon sin or sinners with favor. He must punish them. And so the expression of God's love is limited by the demands of his holiness. He can't simply love sinners into heaven. There actually has to be a price paid. There has to be satisfaction met. God's wrath has to be satisfied in order for God's saving love to go into effect. 
And so when Jesus went to the cross, this is the primary function that he was, that he was, that he was doing on the cross. This was the penal satisfaction of God's wrath on the guilt of sin. So he's, as it were, you know, in, 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 in numbers, when Aaron took the censer and stood between God and man, and God looked upon the, uh, the sacrifice and the plague stopped. It's exactly what happens to us uh, when we embrace Jesus Christ. Uh, Christ went to the cross, and if we stand with him between us and God, God looks through him, and his, and his wrath is assuaged. It's not just, it's not just, it, it, the wrath doesn't simply go away, it's absorbed in Jesus Christ. And because it's absorbed in Jesus Christ, it doesn't reach me, and as a result then, I can then be welcomed into his heaven. Okay, so Jesus' death primarily was a penal satisfaction of the wrath of God against the guilt of sins of individual sinners. Okay, this is necessary. And this, remember, all, all these all these uh, false views. Just about every one we said there's there's no justice. There's no justice. There's no justice. Here's where justice is. Uh, justice can only be found in God's pouring out the punishment that should have been mine upon someone else, upon Jesus Christ. So satisfaction. But more than just satisfaction is this idea of substitution. Uh, sometimes you'll hear the word, the vicarious atonement of Jesus Christ. Um, and and uh, some of you perhaps come from Roman Catholic background, uh, the uh, one of the names sometimes given to the Pope is that he is the vicar of Christ. You're, you're familiar with that phrase. If not, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a designation sometimes given, given to the poem, uh, put to the Pope, uh, because he is the representative of Christ on earth. Okay. So he's the vicar of Christ. He's the representative of Christ on earth. Well, this is the same term here, uh, when we talk about the vicarious substitution of Christ. That is that he substitute. He he is the he is the representative of us individually on the cross. Okay, so Isaiah fifty three is is given over to this idea of substitution. The Lord has caused our iniquities to fall upon Him. Second Corinthians five twenty one. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. On our behalf, in our place, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become that curse for us in our place. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. He suffered for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. And so what, what, what have we added here to the idea of mere satisfaction? Well, by substitutionary atonement, we mean that the death of Christ is in the place of the sinner. Okay, It's not just something that's done in the abstract, that Christ died on the cross to absorb all the wrath of God against everybody in sort of a general sense. Rather, it was a substitution for your sin and my sin. Okay, So when Christ went to the cross, he did not simply provide something for everyone. He accomplished something for specific people. Okay, so Jesus voluntarily became a substitute for individual sinners and suffered the punishment of their sin in their stead. Okay, and so he is, he has suffered my punishment and, and I, I'd like to think that Christ, uh, suffered the punishment that was all of yours. Okay, and uh, by your submitting to Jesus Christ, you demonstrate to be, that to be true. Any questions up till this point? Dr. Snowberger? Yes. Had an unrelated question. We, yeah. I was, I couldn't get in through the link. It's, it's just, it's just spinning, wait, saying, waiting for the meeting. Are we sitting you're, in there? You're not in? Well, we are on an iPhone, but the computer's just saying we're waiting for you to open the meeting. Are we sitting in a, in a, you know, I wonder, I wonder if your other, uh, if your computer is to my old link. 
Oh, you changed the link since? Yeah. That's what yeah. happened to us. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, we changed the link. I think an email went out, but maybe you didn't get it. Well, I just uh, sent the first one, and then I used that to link in. Yeah. So, yeah, okay. we, we, we changed that. I was having a little bit of trouble here um, with some of my recording, and so we changed the uh, the location of the meeting. So okay. You're in the you're in the new meeting there on your phone, so that's how you're getting in. Um, okay. Maybe afterward we can talk about how to get the the right link for you, but, uh, you're okay. in now, but, uh, okay. there's only 15 minutes left. So we'll, we'll just go ahead and limp along with your phone. Yeah. Sorry to break your pace. <laughs> oh, not a problem. Not a problem. Any other questions on the material we covered? We have our covering. Okay. Let's talk about the nouns and verbs of atonement because I think they're very important. Okay. Or what uh, Dr. McCune called the categories of the atonement, the nouns and verbs. Okay, what what are the what are the if we can if we can put this into layman's terms here, what is it that happens on the cross? Well, first of all, guilt is met with expiation. Okay, let's put the verses out here, then define it. Uh, the Lord makes Christ's life a guilt offering. He gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God and has appeared once for all to do away with the guilt by the sacrifice of himself. Okay, now let's define these terms here because I think they're important. Guilt, we often misdefine. Uh, guilt is uh, often thought of as that feeling we get when we do something wrong, but that's actually incorrect. And in fact, uh, if you uh, were ever in a courtroom situation and uh, the uh, the question came back is that person guilty or not guilty in fact not guilty or innocent but actually guilty or not guilty what is what is what is what are they trying to determine okay whether that person needs to pay for a crime okay and so you could be declared not guilty and be innocent and 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 and, and be guilty but uh, but if you if you're declared not guilty, then you are you are exonerated from any liability to punishment. So uh, so what we need from God is to be objectively cleared of that liability for punishment. You know the punishment for offending God is life. You know, sin disqualifies a person morally from living. We deserve death. The wages of sin is death. The only other alternative to individual death of infinite duration is the perfect, sinless, vicarious sacrifice of Christ's life for ours on the cross. So Christ absorbed the punishment and thus removed our guilt. Okay, And the removal of guilt is this term expiation. It's, it's, it's an Old Testament idea that's is 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 seen in microcosm in the Levitical sacrifices. Just as an animal sacrifice could purge guilt and purify the offerer, taking away sin, removing sin as far as the east is from the west, lifting away or clearing them of guilt within the Israelite penal system, so also Christ's sacrifice accomplished these same same effects in those for whom he died in a redemptive sense. This is very important here for us to understand what those sacrifices did. The sacrifices of the Old Testament were not simply a picture of what Jesus was going to do. They are that. In fact, they, you know, they, they allow us as we read the Old Testament to say, oh, that's what Jesus was doing on the cross in a greater sense than what these animal sacrifices were doing. But those animal sacrifices were very important within the Old Testament economy. They didn't save anyone. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. It's impossible. Hebrews tells us that. And yet, when the Israelites brought their animal to the... uh, to the temple, they weren't coming saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to give this the sheep, knowing that the blood is never going to take away my sin. So you, so they throw the sheep at the uh, 
at the uh, at the priest. He kills it, manipulates the blood, and you walk away and say, well, that did nothing. Oh, no, that's not what happened at all. They were quite excited about what happened because what it did was made their, paid their debt to society. So it was a system of crime and punishment, just like, you know, if you happen to get a speeding ticket, you know, going home from church tonight. Well, I guess you're home, right? Um, so you, you're, you're driving along, you get a speeding ticket, you know, you've got to pay a $150 fine, and they say you need to come into X location and pay your fine. So you go in, stand in line, you have your checkbook out, and you write a check, and you hand it to them, and what happens? Well, nothing actually, but what happens is in the eyes of the law, you have paid your debt to society and you walk away free without any more liability to punishment. No more fine, no possibility of jail time. And that's happens, that's true in, in a great many crimes that we, that are committed in the American context. You know, you, you commit theft, you rob a bank, you go to jail for 10 years. After 10 years, you get out and what do they say about you? You paid your debt to society and you can now get on with your life, it's going to be hard for you, but uh, but your debt to society has, in theory, been paid by your long years in prison. And so that's what was going on in the Levitical system. In order to be made right with the community, with the Israelite legal system, you had to accomplish, you had to give these sacrifices, and it would make you right with your community. and. Afterwards, what happened? You, there, there'd be great feasting, great rejoicing. Uh, you, you'd sit down with the priest and you'd share a, you know, a, 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 a meal of good mutton, and it would be a time of rejoicing. Why? Because nothing had happened? No, no, no. Because something very important had happened. But what ha- what happened was not their salvation. In fact, people could go through that whole ritual and not be right with God in the least in terms of their redemption because that was not the function of the Old Testament sacrifices. They could never ultimately take sins away before in God's redemptive order. And that was illustrated, right, by the veil in the temple, right? And so if you can imagine a uh, a man bringing his, you know, his 12 year old son for the first time, he's able to go through all the, uh, uh, through all the, uh, the, the, all the manipulation of all the, all the rituals that were part of the, uh, of the temple, the temple cultus. And so they, so they go through all that and, and the, the son goes through it and he's probably all eyes and, and, uh, and sees what happens and he's very excited because of, that what what happens? He he loves being a part of this, and and perhaps he says to dad at this point, you know, there's that there's that that room over there with that big curtain. Can we go behind that curtain? And dad would say to him, um, no, <laughs> can't do that. And maybe the boy says, well, why not? We we offered our sacrifices, and dad would say, yeah, but. But there's there's some things that sacrifices do it don't do it. That's one of them. The sacrifices don't make one right with God in a redemptive sense. It may may make us right with our society, so that we have no no further debt to society. But it doesn't make us right with God in a redemptive sense. But what that what what that expiation, that low-level expiation, gave us an illustration of what Christ was doing in a much grander scheme on the Christ on the cross. So when Christ went to the cross, he was actually removing the guilt, not just for the next year uh, uh, within your community, but that guilt that is had before God for all of time. And so the expiation that takes place on the cross is a grand thing. He takes away the guilt. Okay, And when, when Christ was on the cross, it was not simply an offer to take away our guilt. He removed guilt. The Lamb of God 
takes away our sin. Okay? So this is the first thing that's accomplished on the cross. Guilt is met with expiation. But more than that, bondage is met with redemption or ransom. Uh, and we see this in two texts here, but others. The Son of Man gave his life as a ransom for many, in whom we have redemption through his blood. So he redeemed us, he ransomed us, and so the idea here is the payment of a price. Specifically, it's a purchase of us out of slavery by the payment of a ransom price to release by payment what has been lost. Okay, so, you know, uh, know, hate to bring up the idea. So, So suppose a relative of yours has been kidnapped and is, is, uh, you know, is held in bondage by someone who is demanding some outrageous price in order for, uh, their release to be affected. And so what you do is you, you know, perhaps cobble together as much money as you can to see if you can buy the freedom of this relative back again. Well, that's, that's the picture here. Uh, or perhaps, you know, a picture of slavery, purchasing someone out of slavery or bondage of having been kidnapped uh, and 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 put to work in the fields, for instance. And so when Christ goes to the cross, he pays the redemption price, the ransom price, in order for us to be liberated. From what? Well, liberated from the law. Okay? Liberated from our sin. And liberated from inability. And so we, we, we are finally given freedom in order to uh, overcome uh, the uh, the crippling effects of the law, the crippling effects of sin, and this this idea of total depravity, so that we can make our way to Jesus Christ because of what He has accomplished on our behalf, and so there's this redemption or ransom that that is that is paid uh, with the cost of Jesus' own life. Thirdly here, wrath is met with propitiation. We've already defined these terms here, but let's, let's do this again. Uh, Psalm 711, the Lord is angry with the wicked every day. He hates those who love violence. The wrath of God abides on the children of disobedience. And so we look at this and say, wow, this is, this is, I, I, I thought God was love. Or perhaps, you know, this, this idea that God loves the sinner but hates the sin. But these verses are pretty strong. It's not just that God hates the sin. According to these verses, he hates the sinner. Okay. So it, 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 it behooves us to explain what wrath is. Wrath is not an attribute of God. It's not something that he has in infinite supply that is constantly being meted out. Rather, Wrath is God's holy disposition towards sin that reflects in punishment, okay? And so what needs to happen is that this wrath has to be diverted and absorbed in order that is no longer pounding out against us. Now, for God, it is possible to exhibit wrath and love simultaneously. And this is hard for us to to grasp. Perhaps we can see it perhaps in the... uh, the idea of disciplining your children, right? You know, so, you know, your, your, uh, your son or your daughter does something outrageous at the dinner table and you send them to the room and then what, what do you have to do? You have, you have to go follow up. You know, you, you walk into the room and you say, I love you. And because I love you, I need to pour out my wrath upon you. Okay. Now you can fill in the gap as to what exactly the pouring out of wrath looks like. But if you're parenting correctly in the proper frame of mind, when you discipline your child, it is a simultaneous expression of both love and wrath, right? Okay. You love that child. And because you love that child, you pour out your wrath upon him so that He won't do it again, and so he won't ruin his life, okay? And so it's an expression of love that that involves the pouring out of wrath. And so this is what God does, okay? So God 
pours out his wrath against us, but it has to be absorbed. It has to be stopped in some ways, okay? But the fact is that the nature of sin makes it necessary for God to have wrath against sin. He can't just say, you know, my sin, my wrath is exhausted, I'll stop. Or say, you know, I love you so much that I'll stop uh, exercising wrath against you. No, no, no. That would be unrighteous. That would be unjust. Rather, uh, the, the, the wrath has to be absorbed by God and, and by Christ. And that's what happens on the cross, right? The theological term for the appeasement or the satisfaction of God's wrath is propitiation. Christ absorbed the wrath that should have been ours and placated God's anger, making it possible for him to express his redeeming love towards us. So he is the propitiation for our sins. Finally, enmity and alienation are met with reconciliation. We're familiar with these ideas, uh, with the idea of forgiveness, right? Okay. Uh, When we need to forgive someone, it's because there is an estrangement or a hostility that has erupted between two of us. And the reason is because of sin. And this happens anytime uh, sin occurs. Your iniquities make a separation, in this case, between you and your God. Ephesians 2, you were at one time separate from Christ, excluded, strangers, apart from God. Colossians 1, you were formerly alienated and hostile. So this was our relationship with God. And as uh, as we understand forgiveness, forgiveness is not something that is just extended. I, I, I'm actually in a, in a counseling uh, situation in, in another uh, church, uh, some some distance away, and uh, there was a there there are there are two individuals who are you know are, are are feuding with each other, and both of them said, "I forgive you, I forgive you," but neither one of them was willing to seek forgiveness, right? And, and, and that made the extension of forgiveness a rather hollow thing. Because enmity and alienation are only met with reconciliation. And this has to be sought and extended. So reconciliation is the theological term for the removal of hostility from both sides, right? and the restoration of peace, harmony, and favor. And so reconciliation affects both God and us. God is reconciled to us. We are reconciled to God. And how does that take place? Through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through Christ's death. And so Christ reconciled us to himself through Christ. That's what Jesus Christ is doing upon the cross. Now, it's a little bit technical here for us. You know, it's a little bit uh, heady here. But I think it's important for us to recognize that what Christ did on the cross was complex, difficult, and and of incredible cost. And so understanding what Christ did on the cross in the atonement uh, gives us, I think, a greater appreciation for what's going on here. And so we find then that uh, uh, Christ's, the efficacy of the atonement is found in two things. Both of them are wrapped up in this idea of obedience. Uh, twofold. And we think about it, his robes for mine, right? That wonderful exchange. What What is this exchange? Well, in his passive obedience, his suffering obedience, Jesus suffered or absorbed the wrath of God. So that's the passive obedience. The, the idea is not so much that he's passive as opposed to, as, as opposed to, uh, it, that he, that he just willingly died, but the idea of suffering, uh, you know, the passion week. Okay. What, what does that mean? It's the, the week of suffering. Okay. So the passive obedience is the suffering obedience of God by him suffering. He was able then uh, by his obedience of suffering, uh, to absorb that suffering ours, and then also by his active obedience, he lived the life that we should have lived but failed to live. Okay, I sometimes ask uh, folks at this point: 
is it, is it enough that Christ, for you know, if you want to get into heaven, is it enough that Christ died for your sins? And it's a trick question. Um, you know, you would ordinarily think, well, yeah, yeah, yes. But the fact is I tricked you because what Christ did was not merely to die for our sins, but also to live his perfect life on our behalf. Uh, pardon and forgiveness alone don't qualify anyone to go to heaven, right? So mere release from punishment doesn't get you into heaven. And in fact, you're coming up on election, right? Some people can't vote, right? Felons, for instance, are, 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 you know, disallowed uh, from voting. Why? Well, because even though they've paid their debt to society, there are lingering elements that remain. So you've been forgiven in the eyes of society, but there are certain privileges that you still do not have. Why? Because in order for you to vote, you actually have to have lived a felony-free life. You have to have lived righteously in order to have that privilege. So even though you paid your debt, there's still some things you can't do. And, and that's a, that's a fair approach. I mean, that's, that's an appropriate, uh, uh, response of the, uh, of the American government to, to this situation. Because just because you've been released from the penalty of the law doesn't mean you've kept the law. Righteousness is required to get into heaven. It's not just the lack, the, the God taking care of your unrighteousness. You actually have to have perfect righteousness to get into heaven. You know, there is not one person, Ecclesiastes says, who has, who has, who has never sinned. Okay. And that's the expectation that we have never sinned and have always lived perfectly righteous lives. That's why I always, you know, when people, when you're trying to establish the fact that uh, someone is a sinner, you're trying to give them the gospel. It's not enough to, to simply say, you know, have you ever lied or have you ever, ever killed anybody? And, you know, Potentially, the person might say, no, I don't think I've ever done that. It's, 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 it's much more telling for you. So, so have you at every moment of your life loved the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and will? Well, no. Well, that's what you need to do in order to get into heaven. You have to have perfect righteousness. We can't supply that. Only one person can. And that is Jesus Christ. And so that's what we talk about when we talk about his active obedience. He was that perfectly righteous law keeper that we have not been. And he effectively earns for us the right to heaven. Now, I I use that term uh, uh, carefully, but hopefully you understand what I mean. You can't earn your way into heaven, but Christ can earn your way to heaven. And that's what occurs uh, when he occurred, when he lived his perfect life. Okay, so through the obedience of the one, the many are made righteous. Philippians 3, I gain Christ, I'm found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from keeping the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Okay, so that is what gives Christ's death on the cross its significance. It's his perfect obedience in substitution for our imperfect obedience. In fact, our flat-out disobedience. So this is what Christ does on the cross for us. Um, so that's, that's, that's the idea of atonement. There's another section here on the extent of the atonement. I really don't intend to uh, to, to go into that. Honestly, uh, a lot of time has been spent talking about that kind of an issue, uh, the extent of the atonement, but I think far more important is what we've talked about tonight. Uh, what are the categories of atonement? What actually did Christ do on the cross for those for whom he died? And, uh, if we get these, if we get these questions correct, I think, uh, not only will be, will, will we be prepared as evangelists for Jesus Christ, but also we should grow in our appreciation of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Any questions? So that's a wrap for tonight. Uh, but any questions you have, I'd be uh, willing to entertain at this at this time before we go our separate ways.
Okay. If not, then I thank you all for coming, and I and I uh, look forward, hopefully, to seeing you next week, same place, same time, uh, same IP. <laughs> so, so we'll look for you then. Take care.